It is a glorious opportunity that we have this afternoon, the just a evening and a few moments, to come together in the name of the great God of heaven and to offer worship unto His matchless and masterless name, to be gathered with those of like precious faith, the words of Second Peter 1, verse number 1, and to appreciate the grandeur and privilege it's ours to offer worship unto Him. We again are thankful for those of our membership who are present, that things are as well with us health-wise as they are, and also for our visitors who have come our way tonight. We certainly hope that the service itself will be an encouragement in that as we strive to worship God in spirit and in truth, we shall be strengthened and edified as we approach this week with Monday tomorrow and look forward to the opportunities that we have to serve the great God of heaven. As you may have noted in the bulletin as it was distributed this morning as well as in the wall to my left, the title of the lesson this evening will focus the attention on that phrase, the day of the Lord. And I would invite us this evening to give some attention, some thought, if you will, to that phrase, to its usage in the Scriptures, and to seek, by way of some introductory thoughts and those things that follow, to have a better appreciation for the things contained in that text. For introductory information, or at least to raise in our minds some interesting thoughts and questions, what does it mean, I suppose, as the Bible writers use the phrase, the word, the day of the Lord? In fact, from time to time, you and I may even hear that phrase employed daily by, by those round about us. In a really powerful way, isn't it true that every day belongs to the Lord? Isn't it true that He is the creator and the giver of all of these days that we enjoy? What then is the thrust of the phrase, the day of the Lord, as it occurs more than once in the Holy Scriptures? As I've listed for your consideration, that phrase in a verbatim way occurs 25 times throughout the nature of the Bible. 20 of them occur in the Old Testament, 5 of them in the New. As we pay attention this evening and devote some attention to the things of those passages and to strive to attain better to an understanding of their usage, I think we'll be encouraged to appreciate the great solemnity associated with the Bible's usage of that, of that phrase. With that being said, I would ask you to perhaps already ponder, are all the 25 occurrences used in precisely the same way? Or are there references to slightly distinct issues concerning the day of the Lord? Let's seek to answer that first by focusing attention on the Old Testament usages, and then, as our lesson moves forward, we'll look at the New Testament ones as well. In terms of the Old Testament, I have tried to make references to these by the chronological order in which the great prophets of the Old Testament chose to use them. In fact, if we recall that those great prophets of the Old Testament came in many instances at a latter stage in Old Testament history, there was that first 2,500-year period of patriarchal law, if you will, followed by that law of Moses. And it really was not until the heart of the law of Moses era when the prophets per se began to appear. We will recall that Moses was called a prophet in Deuteronomy 18, and it's also true that others of that era were recognized in that same way. But the actual era by which the more typical prophets were appreciated did not come until we arrived at such as those of like Elijah and Elisha and the host of the last 17 books of the Old Testament that are called the prophetical books, commencing with Isaiah and terminating with Malachi. God often utilized those prophets in powerful ways not only to rebuke the common people for their failures to do His will, 
But more than once, those prophets would stand before the kings and the nobles and face-to-face -face rebuke those kings for their idolatry, for their failure to accomplish the will of God and encourage that in the lives of those who serve beneath them. Interestingly, wasn't it in fact Nathan the prophet that stood face to face to David and said, Thou art the man, Second Samuel chapter 12. And wasn't it that prophet Amos who would stand directly before the high priest and who himself was slapped on the face because what he had to say the priest did not like, Amos chapter 7 verses 5 and following. Two instances among a host of others that might be mentioned, but it's when we arrive at the prophetical books of the Old Testament we find this phrase used on many occasions. First of all, in the book of Joel, you'll notice that the references that I've listed four times in that book, the phrase is used. The background to that book of Joel, though, sets before us the following idea. The people of Israel, those to whom Joel was prophesying, found themselves in a circumstance in which times were difficult due in part to a tremendous plague of locusts that had ravaged the land and left virtually nothing, it seems, in its wake. So serious was the situation, they not even had the matters needed to carry forth the most basic elements of the service at the corresponding temple, if you will. We notice in part, it is this phrase, Day of the Lord, employed four times where Joel reminds them it's God's judgment upon you because of your failures to obey His will and to comply with that which He has revealed. In essence, God's day of judgment was a day temporally upon this earth for those of Joel's day, in which they came to realize that God was judging them in the near term for the things that they had failed to do and were doing in a negative way in their life. In Joel 3, verse 14, the last reference in that book, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Isn't that an interesting place to find oneself? Joel made note that there is this place called the valley of decision, and so many find themselves therein with the opportunity to make the proper choices. And yet, he said, the day of the Lord, the same verse, is something that they seem to not openly recognize the power of. One interesting reference, of course, is the third one I'd mentioned in that same book. It's interesting, and perhaps you've already noted, that the prophet Joel is called the prophet of Pentecost. In chapter 2, verse 31, he makes reference to the day of the Lord, and it'll be that same reference that we will find and need to revisit later in our lesson this evening. So if you'd like to hold on to that thought, we'll have to see the thrust of Joel's message and Peter's quotation of it. But not only the book of Joel, consider the book of Amos. As we arrive at the book of Amos and note in chapter 5 that again this phrase occurs. As Amos directly addressed the nature of God's people and the fact that they too had found themselves disobedient unto God. They were warned in chapter 4 verse 12, Prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. The sadness and greatness of that thought, though, so powerfully presented in chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. On that occasion, in fact, the following rather descriptive presentation is made. It's as though Amos said that you, in fact, were fleeing from a lion when a bear meets you. That would not be really any better than the lion, do you suppose? Or in the next verse, he said, if you flee from the outside and hope to find security inside, and then while you're in your house, a snake bites you. 
again, that is really no better off than what one may well have encountered outside. Amos' point is this. You and your disobedience have in fact thought that you had the blessing of God on you, and yet His judgment toward you will be fully appreciated in the day of the Lord. The next passage to which we'll turn our attention, that Messianic prophet Isaiah. More than once we notice this phrase being used, and the first time is in the second chapter of Isaiah. As we consider the thrust of Isaiah's usage of the phrase, might I point out in somewhat simple fashion that there is an interesting aspect not seen in the previous two usages. Isaiah points out the following. The people of God lifted themselves, lifted themselves up in rather noticeable pride, rather noticeable arrogance in that they considered themselves in no need of humility. When all the while, the day of the Lord from the perspective of Isaiah would be an humbling thing to them when they too would appreciate that just because God had called them, if they didn't remain faithful and if they didn't remain true to His Word, then they too would experience His wrath. They too would experience the difficulties associated with the justice of a loving God when they too had been disobedient. Those were the very words of Isaiah, especially in the second chapter of that book. Another instance, though, that occurs is also found in chapter 13. This one, again, somewhat distinct from those usages before. Clearly under description here is the Babylonian Empire. And the great prophet Isaiah reigns in his description the matter of God's judgment upon Babylon and rather directly describes the crushing blow that Babylon would receive. Amazing, isn't it, that in essence Isaiah was writing history before it ever happened. You see, God is in control of time and all the affairs concerning it. It may well, of course, be the case, and certainly is, that you and I know not the future. Despite what psychics may think they can proclaim, it's nonsense. No man knows the future, but God does. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. On this occasion, God directly had Isaiah write about the crushing blow that Babylon would receive, though at the time she was at the height of her power and glory. She would not remain that way very much longer. On that occasion, the phrase, Day of the Lord, was Isaiah's description of the crushing blow that Babylon would receive when she would meet the justice of God for her own disobedience and her treatment of various peoples and failure to honor Him. Onward we go to the prophet Jeremiah. As we look at some of the usages in this one as well as Ezekiel, I'd ask you to notice some similarities to earlier places and also some things that are a bit different. In Jeremiah 46, the only usage of that phrase in this book, the prophet Jeremiah was allowed and given the charge by God to give description of the nation of Egypt. And on this occasion, he directly describes the destruction of Egypt. Now, not by what would take place, say, at the end of time, or not by what would take place in any other far distant occurrence, but rather, the day of the Lord would be when an enemy nation would overrun Egypt and crush her. Again, the phrase day of the Lord has reference to a temporal, physical judgment upon this nation of Egypt due to her failures in regard to honoring God. The prophet Ezekiel in chapters 13 and 30, in fact, has the same usage in the first one, the destruction of Egypt. The second one, just a bit different. 
It has relation to the unpreparedness of God's own people. On this occasion, it was the very people of God who themselves were under great difficulty. They were in captivity when Ezekiel wrote. And yet, the description is the day of the Lord and part of its sadness was due to the false prophets. Ezekiel described them. These who in fact prophesied lies, these who in fact claim to have received a vision or some particular revelation, when God says, I have never appeared to them, He says, in the day of the Lord, my people shall suffer due to the fact they are unprepared. And part of that is because the prophets have told them lies and led them astray. There are many warnings like that that, of course, may well rest powerfully upon our hearts and minds so that we could strive not to be unprepared, but rather to always be prepared. In Zephaniah and Obadiah, the next observations, sometimes the prophet Zephaniah is often referred to as the one who so frequently makes reference to the day of the Lord. Though Zephaniah is a brief book, only three chapters, you might note that in chapter 1, verses 7 to 18, he makes note of it more than once. And in fact, in the reference by Zephaniah, he says, though the people of God looked forward to that day and in fact were striving to bring it quicker to pass, Zephaniah warned them, it will not be the day like you expect. It will be a day of darkness, gloominess, wrath, and terror. In other words, rather than beseeching this day to hasten and do so more quickly, appreciate the day will have a character from your own perspective somewhat differently than what you anticipate. Obadiah, the one-chapter book of the Old Testament, affirms that as God would rain judgment upon Edom, that too is described in the language of the day of the Lord. To say all of that is to hasten us to the only last two prophets that make note of this day of the Lord in the Old Testament, the prophet Zechariah. If we notice particularly chapter 14, verse 1, we see that even Zechariah, who now is writing after the return from Babylonian captivity, makes note of this day of the Lord as again a day that is described in somewhat dark ways. Ways that have a degree of difficulty, but there is a brightness on the horizon. For in that very same chapter is a prophecy of the distant coming of the Son of God who will lighten the clouds, remove them away, and bring a glorious brightness to the human family. We might note that Malachi, the very last book in the Old Testament, in chapter 4, verse 5, makes note that Elijah was yet to come before the notable day of the Lord. When you and I remember that Elijah had long since been dead by that point, what was it that Malachi was referring to? Who was the Elijah of whom he spoke? That's another text to which we shall give attention shortly. But upon looking at all of those references in the Old Testament, would it not be fair to summarize them with these comments? As you and I have looked at them, virtually all of them, certainly the vast majority of them, as they have used this phrase, the day of the Lord had reference to a physical element of judgment upon one or more nations of the earth due to that nation's failure to heed the warnings of the God of heaven. Now, in fact, historically, all of those warnings that we have previously mentioned in that regard came to pass. Egypt was destroyed at the Battle of Carchemish in 609 B.C. What's more, that nation of Babylon ultimately was destroyed and Nahum, the prophet, gives us the full account of those effects. You see, when God wrote that history, He did bring the terror of His judgment just as He had promised 
against these nations. And in, in that language, the day of the Lord was the way in which that was referenced. Nations were overthrown. Peoples were punished due to their disobedience to Him. As that thrust of this phrase, the day of the Lord, was presented, doesn't that challenge us to appreciate the greatness of other passages that state what a nation was supposed to be like? In Psalm 9, verse 17, we learn what God will do to any nation that forgets Him. He'll turn them into hell. In Psalm 144, verse 15, one of the closing verses to that chapter, we find the noble description, Happy is the people whose God is the Lord. That's just as true for a nation today as it was in the ancient era of the Old Testament. Happy is the people whose God is the Lord. As we read passages like those that are reminiscent even of Psalm 103 verse 12, we read of the blessing that God showers upon those individuals and peoples who are described and called by His name. These thoughts, though, do bring us to note this. There were a couple of exceptions. Not all of those references to the day of the Lord had reference to the physical difficulties that would be brought upon a specific nation. We mentioned the one in Joel. We might also note that earliest one in Zechariah 14. As we now ask, if they weren't fulfilled then, what did they have reference to? What other day of the Lord might there be? One of the last thoughts I would perhaps set before you is an explanation of New Testament matters that define those two for us. In fact, in Acts the second chapter, we recall that on that occasion, Peter, as he stood on that day of Pentecost and preached the first of the gospel sermons, the power and glorious goodness of the nature of Christ, he quoted from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. And verse 31 is, of course, in that number. And in that verse, he quoted that reference to Joel's statement of the day of the Lord and said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. In essence, Peter said that very matter, the day of the Lord of which Joel spoke, is transpiring and being fulfilled today in your ears. And it was that opening of the Christian era, the establishment of the church, the fulfillment of the greatness of that body that our Savior would ultimately establish. Thus, no wonder that's spoken of in that language. Just as surely as the most of those other references were of a great physical upheaval, an overthrow of nations, this one had reference to a spiritual upheaval. When the old covenant was done away and the new one came fully into its existence, and all mankind was subject to that law. That very thought and idea shows us that, at least in a sense, a degree of similarity is to be seen. What about that text in Malachi? That Elijah was supposed to come before the day of the Lord. We read in Matthew eleven fourteen, Jesus said that this Elias has come. It's John the Baptist. The forerunner of the Christ, the one who in fact prepared the way, the one of whom our Savior said, of whom John rather spoke, I must decrease and he must increase. As those references concerning John as the Elias spoken of by Jesus, do they not challenge us to perhaps look more interestingly at the New Testament references? What about these other days of the Lord? As I noted earlier, there's only five New Testament occurrences of that phrase. And the very first one we find in Acts the second chapter. We've already made brief allusion to this one. On that day when the church was established and Peter preached the gospel sermon quoting from the book of Joel in the Old Testament, 
he made reference by definition that that passage by Joel was fulfilled on that occasion. Thus, we ought never then to think that that day of the Lord is something yet to come. It has now passed by roughly 20 centuries. However, what about the other New Testament references? The next one we find is in the Corinthian letters. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse number 5, as the inspired apostle makes reference to this day of the Lord, what is it of which he speaks? It's in the context of that very troubling circumstance in Corinth when there was fornication openly known in the church. Rather than being sorrowful for it, and rather than treating the problem as it ought to have been treated, the brethren in Corinth, amazingly enough, were puffed up about it. They seemed to take a measure of pride and glory that that was taking place. Needless to say, Paul rebuked them sternly. And as a part of that, in verse number 5, he urged them to so treat the fornicating one that he might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. His soul is at stake living like this. You should withdraw from him, discipline him specifically, with the intent that in the day of judgment he will have come to his senses, repented of the evil, and thus be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Clearly at that point, the reference that Paul makes to the day of the Lord was something yet in the future. It wasn't the same as those days of the Lord in the Old Testament, like the destruction of Jerusalem, or the destruction of Egypt, or the destruction of Babylon. That was something yet to occur. In the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 14, Paul makes note of a re an element of rejoicing that he and his companions would feel on the day of the Lord Jesus as a result of the faithfulness and dedication of the brethren in Corinth. Thus we notice again he was looking to some future occasion, a degree of rejoicing that he would be able to feel over the faithfulness and proper service on the part of these Corinthians. We shall, of course, inquire as to when that day would come. If it was future from the time Paul wrote this, has it yet taken place? Let's look at some more passages before we arrive at a full conclusion, for Paul had more to say about this day of the Lord. In the closing chapter of the First Thessalonian letter, verses 1 and 2, with a special emphasis upon verse 2, the church in Thessalonica had had significant misgivings about the character of the second coming of our Savior. In fact, in regard to that, they were sufficiently troubled that we learn in 2 Thessalonians verses 2, verses 1 and 2, that there was even a false letter that had been written to them, and apparently someone had forged the name of Paul to it. In that letter, things were stated that ought not to have been said, implying that the Lord would quickly return. In these first and second Thessalonian letters, Paul rather powerfully and interestingly set forth the truth on the matter of the Lord's second coming. And this is what he said, chapter 5, verse 2. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Implying and driving home powerfully the point that there is no possibility of ascertaining, figuring out, designating by some prior means the character of the time of that occurrence. The day of the Lord... The fullness of all that that represents will come as a thief in the night. It'll be a surprise. No one will have figured out when it is. No one will have announced to the world that they have ascertained the proper time and character of the day of the Lord. It'll be a surprise. It is still the case that thieves do not ride ahead and let us know when they're coming. 
Thieves do not leave us a post-it note or a phone message on our answering machine saying, I'll be there at 10, 15 Friday night. For we well know we'd have some policemen waiting for them. We understand that it's a surprise. That does remind us, doesn't it, of some statements our Savior made on more than one occasion. The earnest character of which is to affirm in our minds that even His own coming, the coming of our Savior, would be a surprise. In Matthew chapters 24 and 25, several texts could well be noted that all speak to the character of that same idea. In fact, to note specifically Mark 24, Matthew 24, verses 44 to 46, he said that no one knows the day of that hour. He said the important points to watch and to be ready. In Matthew 25, 13, a thought echoed in Mark. On that occasion, we see in Mark 13, 32, But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, neither the angels in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father only. Even Jesus affirmed then how interesting and also how improper it must be for anyone to think that he or she has been able by studious concern to the Word of God to figure out when the day of the Lord will be, when His second coming will arrive. And yet, throughout the decades, there have been many who have attempted to make those bold proclamations. In fact, in lessons on Wednesday night, not too long back, we noted William Miller, who in 1843 said he'd figured out the time of his coming. And when that day arrived and the Lord didn't come, he was a bit disillusioned, of course, but just quickly affirmed, I made a mistake in my calculations. It'll be 1844. When that same proper day in 1844 came and went, we can perhaps easily understand why so many of those who had been his followers so quickly chose not to follow him anymore. You see, he was a false prophet, an individual who, by the very nature of what the Lord had proclaimed, was unable to figure out that day, and so too are all others who've had the boldness to make that same statement. Notice also that is. In terms of that statement, there is another. Sounds very similar to these by Peter. In fact, in the text that was read in our hearing earlier tonight from 2 Peter 3, verse number 10, as Peter was discussing in such boldness the characteristic of the flood of Noah's day and its comparison and contrast to the nature of the Lord's second coming, there were some similarities, but there were also some differences. When he arrived at Verses 7 and following, he said that old world was destroyed by water. The next one will be by fire. He then went on to say in verse 8, One day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. In the aftermath of that, he simply made this statement, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but as long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Then verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. One more time, we notice the future reference to the day of the Lord. It hadn't come when Peter wrote. He used the future tense verb, shall be. It's an event yet to take place. By associating that with Paul's usage in 1 Thessalonians, we know that it will be the accompaniment of the second coming of our Savior. That's the ultimate zenith of what this day of the Lord represents. In looking at those texts, we also can make some conclusions about these New Testament passages as well. 
To these I would also direct your attention. That passage in Acts had reference to the overwhelming upheaval in spiritual matters as the church was established. Just as surely as the great upheaval had taken place physically so often in the Old Testament with the destruction of the physical powers on earth. But as we come to those references in Corinthians, we now see something very distinct. As I tried to point out as we looked at them, they were still referring to something that was yet in the future. It wasn't just the establishment of the church. It would be something on which Paul would rejoice at the, when the Lord came. It would be the description of his coming like a thief in the night. It would be accompanied by the destruction of this universe and everything in it. We begin now to see clearly, do we not, that these New Testament references, these latter ones have as their view the character of the Lord's second coming. That's the day of the Lord. It's true enough that God grants us each day that we have but when the Bible makes reference to the Lord's coming, the greatness of those events that will transpire then, no wonder He often makes use of it in the words the day of the Lord. Some of the last points on that screen tell us then about the interesting character of a judgment that will take place. That fornicating brother in Corinth, it was Paul's desire that he would be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Apparently it will be possible to be lost that day Apparently it will be possible to be separate and apart from the glorious nature of God's presence eternally. And is that not that of which we read in 2 Thessalonians 1? When beginning in verse 7, Paul reminds us, To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven in flaming fire with His mighty angels, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. All the interest associated then with being prepared for the day of the Lord, to be prepared for that powerfully noble day. As we've looked then tonight at the day of the Lord, from both the Old and New Testament perspectives, would it not be fair to summarize some of these thoughts in the following language? As it occurs in both Old and New Testament, the phrase day of the Lord doesn't always mean precisely the same thing. It had to do with physical upheavals, national destructions of various occasions and places in the Old Testament, at least usually, somewhat more seldom. The spiritual upheavals associated with the day of Pentecost and the great things taking place that day. And then as we've come to the New Testament, noting these passages in Thessalonians and Corinthians and in Peter, we each can look forward with brightness if we're prepared to that day of the Lord. For He shall come. And is it not true that every eye shall see Him? Revelation 1, verses 5 through 7. It'll not be a somewhat hidden or rapturous appearing to a selected few. Every eye shall see Him. And when He comes, at that moment, those who are still alive, those who have not passed the threshold of death, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 2, they'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye. They will put on incorruption, just as the dead who will have risen first, they too will be in a position with a spiritual body prepared to then meet their great God in judgment, where they'll give answer for the deeds done in the body. The day of the Lord. Are you ready for the day of the Lord? Are you and I each having made preparation, living in a way that allows us to say, as did those in Revelation, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Revelation 22, verses 21, or 20 and 21. 
this evening, may we appreciate that this day of the Lord is something for which we can make preparation. Would it not be a terrible terror for God to speak about this day and give us no indication of what is necessary to make preparation for it? Might we remember that Amos said, Prepare ye for the day of the Lord, Amos 4.12. You and I, Jesus tells to do the same, Matthew 25. What does that preparation involve? It involves the realization that sin is the problem. Sin is the difficulty. It is that which separates us from God. Isaiah 59 puts it in these words, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that He cannot save, neither His ear heavy that He cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and have hid His face from you that He will not hear. God desires to be in close communion with you and I, the chief elements of His creation. But when we sin, we can't be where He is, for He's holy, and He's pure, and He's sinless. And thus, with sin in our life, we're contaminated. The only means by which that sin can be removed was accomplished outside the walls of Jerusalem about 20 centuries ago, when the sinless, guiltless, precious Son of God shed His innocent blood and that blood, like as a song we sometimes sing, is a flood that can cleanse the sins of man. And as we thus plunge beneath that flood, is it not then that we lose all our guilty stains? Then tonight, we contact that blood in baptism just as they did on Pentecost. Have you been baptized? Jesus demands that we believe upon Him as the Son of God. We repent of our sins. We confess His great name as the Son of God. And then we happily are immersed, baptized for the forgiveness, for the remission of sins. If there would be one in the audience tonight in need of having to accomplish that, there could be no better time than tonight. If you've become a Christian, but you haven't lived up to the goodness and the high calling of that work, you've perhaps lost sight of the day of the Lord. Notice it's still going to come, whether you and I are ready or not. The day of the Lord will occur when the God of heaven dictates that, Son, it's time to, re to return and the affairs of time will close. May we live to be ready. If you need to ask for the prayers of brethren tonight, we could be more than happy to pray on your behalf. Please, if you would, if either of those things is the need of your heart and life, let that be known in a public way, even now, while together we stand and while we sing.